Our scripture this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 4. So as you turn to your Bibles to Galatians 4, let us hear and read the word of God as we find it there. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Abba, Father, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that they that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. 
But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Almighty Heavenly Father, bless this word to our hearts and minds. Help us to not simply understand it in our minds, but to understand it in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a question every husband needs to ask. And I have asked it perhaps even more since my wife has gone to be with the Lord. Do I love her as much as she loves me? This is a question every Christian also needs to ask. Do I love God as much as he loves me? I think I wind up answering both of those questions with a resounding no. Because I was blessed with a life who loved me very deeply. And I loved her deeply, too. I just am not at all sure that I loved her as much as she loved me. And I am sure that I do not love God as much as he loves me. Much as I do love him. As much as he loves me. Now, we're going to talk about that as we go through Colossians. And I'm going to share. I don't always share poems because I preach from God's word, not for poems. But the poem is preaching God's word. We'll come to that at the end. That's why you have that. You actually have four poems. We're only going to look at one of them. But you have that in your bulletin. As we look at the scripture, we're going to look first at the section dealing with the fullness of time. And then a section that I have titled, No Turning Back. And then an allegorical illustration, which Paul gives to us. The fullness of time, verses 1 through 7. The child is under guardians until the date set by his father. This is a picture of a time where the father has passed, but he has left instructions so that the child will be cared for. And there are trustees, a lawyer or somebody from the bank, whatever would happen, you know, to be in the time in which Paul was writing or in our uh, particular time. And those guardians tell the child what he may do and what he may not do, where he may go and where he may not go, how he may use his funds and how he may not use his funds. And so he is no more than a slave, even though he owns everything, until the fullness of time has come. That is set by the Father. Our Father set a time, a fullness of time for us as well. And that was the time of the first coming of the Messiah. And praise God, that time has come. And we are no longer under the guardian of the law. So Paul looks back then at his own personal history and he says, We also, when children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And that's an interesting word. It's particularly interesting to me 
because when I first uh, taught chemistry, and I didn't have all that much background, I ran into a section in the book that said, the stoichiometry. And I thought, oh, I've never heard of stoichiometry. What am I going to do now? I'm supposed to teach this stuff, and I don't even know what it is. Well, I found out what it was. Metri comes from meter. It means measurement. And stoichio means element. It's simply measuring the elements. It's the mathematics of chemistry. If you have this much of this and this much of that, how much of another compound can you get? So it wasn't as dangerous as I thought it would be. Uh, I just didn't know the name. Well, that word stoichio is used in Scripture a number of times, and it's used in this passage. The elementary principles of the world. That's what, that's what it means, element. And the New Testament uses it the same way as we use it. First uh, Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, the elements, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The elements will be burned up. The atoms, the molecules, the stuff, the physical stuff. But that's not the only way we use the word. We use it to mean elementary, simple, basically, the heart of things. And so does Scripture, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles, the stoichio principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So the elementary things, we need the elementary things over and over again. One of the things I've found as a preacher, one of the things I've found as a teacher is I keep saying the same things again and again and again. But that's because that's what Scripture teaches. And that's because that's how we learn. We, our heads, you know, are kind of hard. At least this one is fairly hard. I'm glad it's a little hard, but it might be nice if it weren't quite as hard. I need repetition to get things inside of it. And so we do. So we do. Here, so though we have the weak and worthless elementary principles, how are we going to understand that? We understand the elementary principles of God's Word. At least we have them in His Word. How will we understand it? This is a contrast. Paul is making a deliberate contrast between the elementary principles of the world and the elementary principles of His Word. So that we'll see those two because these folk are going back to the law. They're going back to the elementary principles of the world and not of God's word. Uh, now, in, in Greek, the elementary principles were earth, wind, fire, and water. Uh, they were the building blocks that they saw of all things. But to the Hebrew, it was different. The elementary principles initially were the Torah, the first five books of Scripture. And the things that they said, and they're very important, uh, I would love to uh, come up here for about uh, 27 weeks <laughs> if the Lord were to so bless me and 
teach you about the book of Leviticus. If you've never read the book of Leviticus, don't let it scare you. The first section is all sacrifices, and they turn people off. But that's all about what Christ did for us. And then the last section is about the you know, Christian, Christian living. So the Torah is valuable, but that's the law. And the law has been set aside by grace. So the ceremonial law, the seasons, the times, the days to be kept, very important when that was what God commanded. But that time has passed. The fullness of time, you see, has come. The Messiah has come. So now that the fullness of time has come, there's a change. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. This Paul was writing here about the problem of what do I do about uh, meat that was offered to idols? And basically he's saying, you know, the idols are nothing. The meat's fine. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, as long as it doesn't bother a brother in Christ that might feel that somehow you're worshiping idols by eating it, then don't, don't eat it, of course. And so he goes on saying, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the heart of it, belongs to Christ. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, there it is again, that word elemental, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. Asceticism is uh, when you are hard on your body to strengthen it or whatever. Um, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Keeping them does not keep you from fleshly sins. They're still there in your minds and perhaps in your actions. So for us, as children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Before I told the Lord that I wanted to be a Christian, I was very, very foul-mouthed. When I said, Lord, I want to be a Christian, that changed. I didn't set out to change it. I knew it should change. I mean, I knew that before I asked the Lord, told the Lord I wanted to be a Christian. But it changed because the Spirit started working in my life. That's what happened. So for us as children, we were enslaved, but no longer is that true. And we may still be enslaved to things that we yield to for value or self-worth. Now, beloved, you are worth everything in the world. God has given you self-worth. You are incredibly valuable. His son came and died for you. He came and died for me. But sometimes we think that the things of the world are, are critical. And, and we all of us do that, and to some extent it's okay. Um, we think, well, a woman must look just so. A man must be strong and athletic. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm no longer strong and athletic. I never really was all that strong and athletic, but I could do things I can't do anymore. 
And most of us who are older, we've experienced a little bit of that. But those things, it's okay to be strong and athletic. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay for a woman to be attractive and good-looking and wear nice clothing. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is not what gives you your self-worth. If you're not strong and athletic, gentlemen, you're still valuable in God's sight. Your self-worth does not come, and I praise God for that, self-worth does not come from that. So that's, that's important. In the fullness of time, Christ came so that we could become sons of God, so that you could be God's children adopted fully, totally into his family, absolutely his. And we think of that. I want you to think about Christ and who he was. He was first God, deity, the son of God. Well, What's the other title given to Christ in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels? He was human, human as, as human as you and I, the Son of Man. And those titles go back and forth, and Christ uses them of himself, Son of God and Son of Man. Read the Gospels, you'll, you'll see that. And he came so that we could become sons of God as he is. Hebrews chapter 2, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, and you know I can say sisters, sisters you are brothers as well, okay, in this context. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And we are tempted every day. All of us are tempted. Born under the law to pay the penalty of the law and to be able to redeem those who were under the law. Now, the result of adoption of sons is that the Spirit has been sent into our hearts and that the Spirit helps us pray and guides us in life. What are we called to do? What is, you know, what is my next step in life? Uh, Elder Farrell told you that I, I was going to uh, be at Newport, Tennessee, and I'm only going as a, what's called a stated supply. That means I will be preaching there every Lord's Day. I will help them all I can. I won't, I'm not a called pastor. Uh, if I were young enough to be a called pastor, I might apply to be your pastor, but I don't think I could do the full job anymore. By God's grace, you know, we come to a point in life where we could do parts, but not necessarily all. At any rate, uh, the Spirit helps guide us as to what our call is. Because we are no longer slaves, we are heirs of God. Now, I want you to notice two things in these. First, notice the Trinity, that this scripture has mentioned the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. And the Trinity is there. The next thing I want you to notice, and and I illustrate it like this, is that God became man so that man could become sons of God. 
And if you're making notes, you might just put a cross there, an X, really, like that. God became man so that man could become God, or sons of God more fully, accurately. So Paul goes on to say to them that there should be no turning back, verses 8 to 20. Uh, Do you not know? Uh, They did not know God. They were enslaved by nature, not gods. And, And what are by nature not gods? All kinds of things. In our lifetime, I would list four things. <laughs> I'm laughing because of the fourth one, but you'll find out about that in a minute. Materialism. How much stuff do I have? How much stuff can I get? That kind of materialism. There's another kind philosophically, but that kind of materialism. That's one of the things people go after in this life. They go after it because that's how they have value. If I have as much money as Warren Buffett or somebody, you know, whoever you want to pick, Elon Musk these days is being talked about, then I'll be of more value. That's not what gives you value. Politics, if only we had a different president, if only we had a different governor, mayor, congressman, you name it. Well, that's also not what gives us value. It's important. As Christians, we should be involved in politics. We should vote. We should study the issues and all of that. That's true. But that's not what gives us value. Sports, entertainment, these things aren't evil, but they're not gods. They're not the heart of our value. And then the fourth one is a blank line. And after the blank line on my notes, I write, fill in the blank. Because you can fill in the blank for yourself better than I can. The list could go on, obviously. So we talk about the current situation. Paul talks about the current situation. Now that you have come to know God, and it's really interesting how he goes on, or rather to be known by God. (laughs) Now, God knows everybody to begin with. But when it says that we are now known by God, something has changed. He knew us before we were Christians. He knew us before we were born, before our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were born. But he knows us now in a different way. He knows us as his sons, as his children adopted into his family. That's so important. So there are some perspectives here on knowing God. First, we come to know him. I say first, not not first in order, but just in the listing here. And so we come to know him, but he comes to know us. John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus said, I know my own and my own know me. We, We used that passage earlier in a little different context. But but here in this context, he knows us. So thinking this thing through, first, God knows everything and everyone, yet only his action brings us to know him personally. That is so important, to know him personally. That's why, and I've said this before, I'm sure in this pulpit, and I know in other pulpits, that's why we say God in three persons that we can know the Father personally, we can know the Spirit personally, we can know Jesus personally. 
God in three persons. So that's part of uh, the perspective here. And there's a paradox here as well. We are called to evangelism. And by the way, notice the word evangelism. Have you ever noticed that angels in the middle of it? Ev-angelism. That's because evangelism is sharing the gospel with other people. Sharing your testimony or just the simple things of when, you know, when you're in a store and they say, uh, have a nice day, saying, may you have a nice day too and the Lord bless you. And bringing the Lord back into the marketplace and into your daily lives or to your neighbor. He says something, oh, your garden looks wonderful. Praise the Lord. It really does, doesn't it? Just little things like that. Little things like that. Because you are then being an angel. You are all capable of being angels. And yes, I believe in angels who are not human beings. And I know that there are fallen angels who are demons. And I believe in that as well. But the word angel just means messenger. Those angels who are not human beings are called angels because they're God's messengers. And you are angels too. I don't know if you're as angelic an angel as you ought to be. I don't know if I am as angelic an angel as I ought to be. But we are angels, and that's good. That's good. That's as it should be. Now, he goes on then to speak to them about this, having talked about this paradox that we're called to accept Jesus, and yet we can only do so if he draws us. Um, and we're called to evangelize. That's what I was starting with there. We're called to be angels to others, and yet only God can really bring them to himself. And that's a paradox. But then he goes on to the question about what about this business of following the law, this business of being circumcised? Because that's what, you know, that was the immediate central issue. The other one he mentioned was keeping days and seasons. He mentioned that as well. The question is not, and this you must understand, is not whether or not you're circumcised. He didn't care whether they got circumcised or not. The question isn't whether we remember Christmas and Easter or Maundy Thursday or Good Friday or any of these other days and seasons. If we do, fine. If we don't, fine. The question is not those things. The question is, do you conclude that those are necessary for your salvation? If you conclude that those things are necessary for your salvation, then you're going right back to the law and right back to earning your salvation. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. Not the way God set it up. If you're trying to earn your salvation... You're offering involuntary obedience to the law. I have to do this. Otherwise, I won't be saved. That's slavery. That's not what God has given us by his grace. So the manner in which they were yielding is Paul's problem. And he has deep concern. Have I, he says, labored over you in vain? Now, What he means there in vain 
for particular individual people. Because his labor was not in vain, he knows that. In Corinthians, he writes, and this is such a wonderful verse, all by itself, apart from Galatians or studying Romans or whatever other book. 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul's labor with them was not in vain. His concern is whether particular individuals have really accepted and come to Christ through the Holy Spirit. And he believes that they really have. And so he goes on and talks about the good things that they uh, have done. Um, and, And by the way, he talks about himself, I entreat you become as I am, for I have also become as you are. How does he mean that? I have cast aside all thought of being saved by my Jewishness. He talks about that elsewhere, about being uh, a member of the tribe of Benjamin and all the things that he did to prove that he was a good Jewish follower of God and knew God and was fully saved by God because of all that he did. And he says, I've become like you. I've given that all up. That's of nothing. No, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Replace all, and I'm thinking of Nick now because if you were here, and you should all come for church school, and if you didn't, I'm scolding you. Be scolded. But he said this this morning, replace all self-righteousness with Christ-righteousness. I'm called to do good things, and by God's grace, I'm able to do good things, as well as some bad things. But by God's grace, I can. I'm not saved by any one of them. I'm saved only by the righteousness of Christ and what he did for me upon the cross. That's it. Their earlier, then he talks about their earlier response. He says they did him no wrong. They had a positive relationship that some bodily ill had caused him to stay there and to preach to them. Otherwise, he wasn't planning to stay in Galatia, but he did. Uh, He says some interesting things just by way of knowing something about Paul. Uh, that they did not scorn or despise him. They were very good to him. And he says, you would even have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. You know, Paul talks elsewhere about his thorn in the flesh. And I think quite firmly, he never says what it is. But this book is the one that makes me think he had poor eyesight. And at the very end of the book, if you read on to chapter 6, he says, see with what large letters I write to you with my own hand. Why would you write with large letters with your own hand? Because you can't see very well if you write it too small. <laughs> fairly, fairly simple and straightforward. He usually used people who wrote for him. He would dictate, and they would write the letters. Romans, undoubtedly, was written physically written by someone other than Paul. Now, Paul dictated it, of course. It was Paul's words in that way. So he talks about that, and then he says, Have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? 
and ask them to remember the shared care, the concern for each other, the many blessings they had together. And following that, he shows the depth of his concern and his love for them. It's okay, he says, to be made much of, but for a good purpose. And then he says, my little children, I am perplexed. I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, I don't know what the anguish of childbirth is, but a lot of your ladies do. And some of you had more anguish than others because I, I know as a pastor that there are differences between ladies as far as that goes. I had one lady who had ten children and they just kind of popped out. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> if you're going to have ten, you hope it's that way. Uh, but he says he's in anguish. He wants to give a strong picture of his pain over the fact that they are concerned and doing things that are wrong. He's, he wants Christ formed in them to get them away from any legalism. He wants Christ formed in them to create the freedom from license or immorality that they had had. He wants Christ formed in them to build true integrity. Integrity. That's automatically, naturally, by who you've become in Christ, doing what's right and living in a way that's right. Integrity. And he then gives an illustration. It's an allegorical illustration. He talks about Abraham's two sons, one by a slave one by a free woman. And you know this story, you, you were older at least, um, that Abraham and Sarah had been unable to have children, and Sarah gave her slave Hagar to him that he might have a child by Hagar, and they, she would adopt the child. And the child that was born was, of course, Ishmael. But God had promised prior to that that Sarah was going to have a child. And by any human standards, it was totally impossible. But she did. And that child was Israel. And he says, Ishmael represents the covenant of law. Sinai, the law given on Mount Sinai. Not an evil thing, this slavery. It was meant to be a guardian until the time had fully come. Until the fullness of time. But still a law and therefore a slavery. So the children of law are slaves themselves. The present Jerusalem, he says, where they believe in the law still, is Hagar, is slavery. But the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem in heaven, the new Jerusalem that has come down from heaven, because we're already in heaven a little bit, you know, we're all, we already have eternal life. And yes, there's more to come. Of course there's more to come. But don't think it just starts when we pass or when Christ returns. It started right now. It's here. Um, so he wants to point out that this covenant of the promise, grace, preceded Sinai. It was before the law. The law came in because it was needed at that point. It was an unconditional promise, not based on what you do or how good you are, or how perfect you are in some respect or other. 
I, I, I'm always concerned when I'm preaching, if I'm really doing a good enough job with God's word. And when I finish, I'm always absolutely convinced that I didn't. And then people tell me I did, which is very nice. I'm not sure they're right, but that's okay. God used it for them. That's good. Because it's never good enough. How can you be good enough for God? We can't be as good as him. Well, someday, almost. (laughs) I'm not sure how to say that. I mean, we'll be a lot better, (laughs) at least. The children of grace are free. The new Jerusalem above is free. We are free. This is an allegory. It doesn't limit the children of Ishmael. By the way, we know who the children of Ishmael are. They're the Muslims in Arabia. And by extension, those whom they've converted. But they can come to Christ. Many of them do come to Christ. I've been involved with a ministry called uh, MRF, Mid-East Reformation Fellowship. My involvement is somewhat limited, but nonetheless, um, that ministry is reaching some of them. They can come. But in the meantime, all those who have come who are in Christ are free. We are free. Galatians chapter 4, 28 to 31, uh, the children uh, of the law persecute the children of the promise. But he says, cast out the slave woman and her son. He doesn't mean those who would come to Christ who are of Ishmael. But he means cast that out of your life and take on the freedom of Israel in your life. Because we are children of the free woman. And now I want to turn you to the poem. This poem is written by a man named John Donne, D-O-N-N-E. His most famous poem is Death Be Not Proud, which is on the flip side. But I want you to look at his poem. It's the top one uh, under the poems by John Donne statement. Wilt thou love God as he thee? And I want to go through it with you, so watch it. Wilt thou love God as he thee? Then digest my soul this wholesome meditation. This is the the thesis statement, if you would, at the beginning. Do you really want, are you willing to love God as he loves you? Then think about what I'm going to tell you right now as I meditate on this. And he begins then, first two verses, I mean, first two lines. How God the Spirit, think about how God the Spirit, by angels waited on in heaven, makes his temple in your breast. God, the Spirit, waited on in heaven by angels, the the other kind of angels, makes his temple in us. And then he talks about the Father. The Father having begot a Son most blessed and still begetting, for he ne'er be gone, if that is the Son, has deigned to choose thee by adoption, co-heir to his glory and Sabbath endless rest. Deigned means has stooped down, has yielded to us in our weakness. And so the Spirit waited on in heaven, has made his temple in our breast. The Father, who is creator of all things, Spirit and Son with him, of course, has lowered himself, so to speak, has has leaned down, might be a better way to say, 
to choose us by adoption. That's how much he loved us. And then it talks about the son as a robbed man, which by search does find his stolen stuff sold, must lose or buy it again. The picture here is of a pawn shop, that kind of thing. Somebody's been robbed of his stuff, and the robber has sold it, and now he finds it in the pawn shop or wherever he finds it. And in order to get it back, he's got no way to identify it, no way to get the police in on it. If he wants to get his stuff back, he's got to buy it back. It's not fair. That's what he's got to do. That's the picture he's given here, John Dunn. The son of glory came down and was slain. Us whom he'd made and Satan stole to unbind. He came down to buy us back. And then the last two lines really struck me when I read them. Twas much that man was made like God before. That's referring to Genesis chapter 1, the creation. Let us make man in our image. It was quite a thing that God would bother to make man in his image. But that God should be made like man, that Christ should become a human being, much more. How much did God love us? Enough to not only make us in his image, but for his son to be made like us. And that's a wow statement. I love that poem. I love John Donne. He was a Puritan poet around the 1600s. And uh, Christians, one of the reasons I love singing hymns from the hymn book, more than these things put up, and the new things are good too. Some of them, some of them aren't as good. But but I love singing from the hymn book because we find our connection to Christians all through the ages when the hymns were written. Well, I find the same thing in reading John Donne's poem. Christianity, the grace of God, was the same in 1600 as in 2022. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God. He doesn't change. It's the same. It's the same. So remember these things at least then. Know that God is working out his purpose in you. Depend on absolutely nothing but his finished work in Christ and seek to love God as he loved you, at least as close as you can come. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, I know that I do not love you as much as you have loved me. And I doubt that any of us here have. But, Father, help us to love you. Help us to strengthen in that. And in our love for you, help us to live for you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.